welcome to the latest episode of At The Flicks. Yes, the three old-timers are back with our eclectic mix of news, reviews and rambling discussions on everything movie-related. Sadstruvi, my name is Jeff and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Recently, I've been re-watching all The President's Men and got to thinking, what will they call the film about the downfall of Orange Man? And then it came to me, obvious, a perfect storm E. Uh, Gunichiwa, my name is Graham and my main cinema interests are sci-fi and comics. This month, we have two superhero movies to review, so I'm happy, but I can't say the same for Jeff. And you would be right. Neil, how's it going, mate? Bonjour, my name is Neil, and I just enjoy films, except horror. The word pointless comes to mind. Listeners might be wondering why we are introducing ourselves in Russian, Japanese and French. It's too long a story for here, but there is a section in this month's show notes on attheflix.co.uk that explains all. Now from one mystery to another. Please, Jeff, end my sleepless... No, I'm going to so regret saying that. (laughs) By telling us the answer to last month's quiz question. Of course, Neil. I'd hate to have you kept awake at night thinking of me. You are indeed a nightmare. Neil, are you okay this evening? You, You don't seem happy. Is it because Meghan Markle's thrown you over for a ginge? <laughs> okay, back to the plot. As a recap, last month's question was, in the history of the Oscars, only three films have won the top five awards. Film, actor, actress, director and script. I won't shame you by asking you to name them, so the answer is... It happened one night, made in 1934. Isn't that the birth year of one of my fellow presenters? Uh, no. No. <laughs> one Flew of the Cougar's Nest, 1975. Actually, that's my birth year. Did you get to 25 and decide to start counting again? And the final part of the answer, Silence of the Lambs, 1991. There'll be another fun quiz at the end of the podcast. Oh, joy. My life will be completed by more of Jeff's pointless brain teasers. Another good use of the word pointless. Anyway, moving away from Jeff, at least for a moment, I see that last month's feature about the future of cinema generated some correspondence from some of our listeners. Graham, I believe you have a comment from Phil Foster. Yes, I do, Neil. Phil picked up on the importance of global markets by pointing out that China has increased the box office share US movie distributors can take out of China from 25 to 40%. This will be a very lucrative arrangement for Hollywood unless, of course, Orange Man undermines the deal with his threatened trade war. Oh, and talking of Phil, have you guys read his Ridley Scott retrospective that's a great piece i'll post the link in the show notes it is very good if you want to find our show notes plus all of our previous episodes email contacts details twitter handle they can all be found on our website at theflakes.co.uk back to you neil for more listener comments Paul Nicholas has also raised a very good point which we didn't include in our comments about streaming services the box set as Paul says, stories are now being told over, say, 12, 20, even 100 hours or more. The viewer is becoming accustomed to levels of detail and plot progression that just aren't possible in just 90 minutes. Jeff, I expect you, as usual, to have something to say about this. I do. I agree with Paul on this one. And it is certainly impacting on how we view films. For instance, both Monuments Men and the Ben Affleck film Live By Night would have both benefited if their story length was at least doubled, which is not possible for a commercial cinema release. 
As it is, they both feel rushed and lacking in character depth. A good point well made. Let's just hope no one plans an expanded version of Isle of Dogs. Other than Isle of Dogs, you spoke sense there, Jeff. There's a clever boy. I would also like to add a note of thanks at this point to Declan Shields for all his support with our fledgling Twitter account. Thank you, Declan. Graham, while we're on this moment of sanity, please let us know what's on this podcast this month. Okay, this month our theme is our personal cult movie. Yes, I know, I had to ask Jeff to repeat it the first time he said it to me. To be clear, it is cult movie. Then our ever popular movie news feature, and we have a bit of a scoop this month. After that, there is the movie review section where we will be giving our reviews on Avengers Infinity War. Breaking In and Deadpool 2. Finally, the audio equivalent of slamming your hand in a car door, it's Jeff's challenging movie quiz question. Jeff, kick us off with our theme for discussion, Personal Cult Movies. Now, after the rather serious tone on the last couple of months with our theme discussions, we're going to lighten it up this month and talk about some of our favourite personal cult movies. That is, films which each of us like and the other two may not have seen, or indeed may not have even heard of, which for Neil probably means some Latvian stick figure animation film. Hey, there have been some great Latvian animation films. Have you seen Rocks in My Pocket, which uses animation to deal with themes such as suicide and depression? It must be wonderful in your world, Neil. It is. You make Diane Abbott seem like a fun and interesting person <laughs> to be around. Thank you. Anyway, let's return to the reality of personal cult movies for my co-presenters to watch. Indeed, that challenge is also thrown open to you, our listeners. If you like a hard sell for these films, then try and catch them and let us know what you think. As always, we'll read your comments out on air. I'll go first, and it may surprise you, my choice is neither horror or political. It is in fact a 1978 disco comedy called Thank God It's Friday. What, Jeff, have you stopped that medication again? We don't want you becoming like uh, Carrie Matheson on a homeland. Too late. What's probably confused both of you is that this film is named after your favourite high-class restaurant. <laughs> I do accept this film is not to all tastes. Much like the food there. Right, OK. I'll give you that one, Neil. Thank you. Um, this is the movie which film critic Leonard Matlin reviewed as perhaps the worst film to have won some kind of Academy Award. It did, in fact, win for Best Song, being the Don Summer hit Last Dance. For me, people who don't like this film have just forgotten how to have fun, or, in Neil's case, ever to have had it in the first place. <laughs> Thank God It's Friday is simply bursting with fun as a fantastic disco soundtrack and a first-rate ensemble cast. There is a very simple plot. No wonder you liked it. Clearly the complexities of Isle of Dogs were too much for you last month. Um, on that subject, Neil, did you see the Isle of Dogs review in The Spectator? It's The Spectator, Jeff. Nobody reads that. Hang on a minute. Monty the Dog reviewed it. Monty the Dog. I rest my case. And his headline quote was, It was good, but I preferred slurping my genitals. Enough said. That's not a review. That's a canine observation. Monty the dog seems more like a flea-bitten old mongrel than Bolt the super dog. Anyway, it's very difficult for dogs to do and almost impossible for humans. Not that I know, but how could he see the film while licking his balls? (laughs) So... As Neil continues to contemplate his genitals, (laughs) let's get back to the plot of Thank God It's Friday. 
It's set over one night in a Los Angeles disco called The Zoo and follows a number of characters as they interact. There is the suave club owner who's a hit with all the ladies. And yes, that's a 20-something Jeff Goldblum. Never playing more against type than here. Nicole, played by Donna Summer, who just wants to prove she is a singer and, of course, find a way to sing that song, Last Dance. (laughs) She certainly is a singer. Her acting skills are non-existent. Then there are the Commodores. When the lineup still included Lionel Richie. Away from the singers, there's an older married couple who have come into the disco on a personal dare, two teenage girls who want to compete in the dance competition, and Marv, the leather man, the dancing king. In fact, Neil, with that leather jacket and 70s moustache, you were a dead ringer for Marv, and I believe you share his philosophy. Dancing. Everything else is bullshit. Except for everything you just said. Spawn. <laughs> Okay, take the leather jacket off now then. All right, watch out also for performances from a very young Deborah Winger, Terry Nunn, who went on to be the lead singer with Berlin, Valerie Landsberg, who later went on to be one of the stars of TV's fame, and the very underrated John Friedrich, so good in a number of films in the 70s, but then disappeared from the acting scene in the 80s. I think his last uh, thing he appeared in was the TV version of The Thornbirds. Maybe it's not such a surprise after all. <laughs> Overall, the film has a real energy about it. It's like watching a full feature based on the first 10 minutes of Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Night. Although the camera work isn't as good, in my opinion, Thank God It's Friday really captured that disco mood of the time, possibly too well. When the film came out in the summer of 78, it was classified A. That's PG to you youngsters out there. Decades later, when the film finally came out on video, it was classified 18. Yet it's exactly the same movie with nothing cut or added. The reason for this is because the pill-popping sequences in the disco, which meant nothing to a 70s audience, but times had changed by the 90s and it couldn't be played for laughs anymore. Thank God It's Friday has many highlights. Donna Summer singing Last Dance, the Commodores performing Too Hot to Trot, the Leatherman's dancing sequence and some very funny, if not totally PC, comic sequences. Having heard all that, would you guys watch it? I'm just ama- absolutely amazed that you liked a disco movie <laughs> when I think of you, Jeff. To be honest, it's not often. I don't see you as the John Travolta of South Wales. Hang on a minute. I had that famous white suit in my teenage years. <laughs> However, I liked uh, Donna Summer's music. Uh, I Feel Love is still one of my all-time favourites. Mind you, she went a bit bonkers in her later years. Something she hasn't come on with you, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I like the fact they have loads of characters and their, their interweaving stories. Jeff Goldblum is a romantic lead. As you said, I was intrigued. In fact, I was so intrigued that I downloaded a copy and was surprised that it was such a strange and quirky little movie. Um, very, very 70s. Uh, the music was excellent and there were some good performances from the lead characters. However, I couldn't understand, that they, as you mentioned, the 15 certificate for the drugs. Why is it still got a 15 certificate? Uh, absolutely. And this is where it gets really strange. So it went from an 18 now down to a 15. Mm-hmm. Yet in America... To this day, it is still a PG. Yeah, so that attitude of the drug taking, more free and easy in the 70s. And to our listeners, we're not condoning this. Um, But what I would say is, in real life, the sad thing about this film is uh, a lot of the cast did meet rather unfortunate ends. But um, don't let that put you off. It's still great disco fun. I hated disco. I've seen Saturday Night Fever. Haven't I suffered enough? I know why you're saying this. 
You've only seen the castrated PG version and not the original, which is still an 18 certificate. It's probably too tough for your delicate sensibilities. So that's it then. You've just dismissed my choice out of hand because you've had a sheltered life. <laughs> but I'm sure our listeners will have something to say about this, and I look forward to the letters. Hang on, can I, can I just go back a bit? So what version did I see at the cinema back in the 70s of Saturday Night Fever? You'd have seen the 18 certificate version, or the X certificate as it was then. So okay. it's all being cut for video. Now what happened was, the so Saturday Night Fever came out and it was an 18 certificate, and there was like this huge outpouring. And a, a true story, I was actually in the cinema watching Saturday Night Fever and there was all this banging going on as we were watching this thing, like something knocking down the building. And it was all these under-18s that couldn't get in and they were trying to break into the exit to try and get in, to get into the cinema. Robert Stigwood, who produced the film, said, there's got to be a way you can make some more money out of this. So what he did is he found a way to cut all the swearing and a lot of the adult uh, themes out of it. Right. And okay. he would put it out as a PG certificate. And if you have seen that, Neil, I can fully understand why you would hate it, because it's dreadful. But I would strongly recommend seeing the original. It's great. Can you still get the original? Yeah, yeah, I've got a copy. Oh, there you go, Neil. Oh, damn yeah, it. I, it, my disco, <laughs> my disco my movie collection. I haven't is... got any money. No, 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 no. Sorry, no. mate. Dropped you in it there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, no, no, no. My disco movie collection is second to none, and I'm quite happy to lend you uh, some of the ones that I've got. Yeah. Moving on for my cult movie, I'd like to review a Latvian stick figure anime. Hey. No, actually, it's the Hiyama Miyazaki classic and winner of the 2003 Academy Award for Best Animated Feature, Spirited Away. My children grew up on Toy Story 1, 2, uh, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo and The Incredibles. So when Spirited Away won the Oscar over Ice Age and Lilo and Stitch... And I still can't believe that. Ice Age is a far better film than I haven't seen Spirited Away. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't. May I continue? So I bought the DVD. Both original and English language versions are available. with equally good, by the way. And the UK-USA versions include a forward by John Lasseter. Oops, oh, why not? Qu- yeah, why not quote from Harvey Weinstein while you're at it? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I was just in shock at the mention of John Lasseter there. Patience. It remains one of my and my children's favourite animated features, and also to introduce me into a world of non-English language films. Suddenly, I have access to films that don't end with everyone living happily ever after. All the spirited away, I suppose it does. Um, that don't have to fit a formula and was spirited away at two hours long studio ghibli created a film not a money-making product to fit a prescribed film length the film company had a significant back catalogue before spirited away and with either mizaki or isao takahata another founder directing when the u.s got wind of the potential for the films they were informed no cuts. The no cuts policy was highlighted when the Miramax co-chairman, Harvey Weinstein, told you, uh, it suggested editing Princess Mononoke, another oh. Miyazaki film, to make it more marketable. A Studio Ghibli producer is rumoured to have sent an authentic Japanese sword with a simple message, no cuts. <laughs> the discussions must have been equally brief for Spirited Away which is two hours long, and because then, again, nothing was cut. The film, written and directed by Miyazaki, is set in a fantasy world of spirits. Chihiro, a headstrong ten-year-old, is unhappy at the family being moved to another town, away from her friends. They stop on the way at an abandoned theme park and decide to explore. 
While Chihiro is exploring her parents get turned into pigs. Well, that's just lazy writing, (laughs) to quote another film I'm reviewing. She befriends Haku, a helpful river spirit, who tells Chihiro that the park hosts a bathhouse for spirits and that to survive she needs to find a job. The boiler man is known to be sympathetic, or the witch will turn her into an animal. She works in the bathhouse diligently and with care. She returns Haku's friendship and loyalty and at one stage imploring the witch to spare his life. Chihiro grows as the film progresses, accepting the responsibilities and tasks put in front of her with good grace. She meticulously picks her way through the strange world. She trusts her instincts and makes friends to help her. She is the ultimate hero. Her responses to danger, problems and the need to save her parents are a stark counter to the usual movie staple of fantastical violence solves all. To quote some critics, Pete Travers in Rolling Stone, Think you're too hip for a Japanese anime about a lost ten-year-old girl whose parents turn into snorting pigs? Get over it. From Roger Ebert, Miyazaki's drawing style, which descends from the classical Japanese graphic artists, is a pleasure to regard, with its subtle use of colours, clear lines, rich detail, and its realistic depiction of fantastical elements. He suggests not just the appearances of his characters, but their natures. Apart from the stories and dialogue, Spirited Away is a pleasure to regard just for itself. This is one of the year's best films. And finally, to quote the New Yorker, with a story that's obscenely clever. Pixar and others do produce wonderful films, and it's a great time to be a kid, young or old. But Spirited Away is close to Pixar's very best. Do you know what, Neil? I I was thinking earlier, as you were saying about that sword story and no cuts, thinking, I hope Monty the dog isn't listening to this. That'll make his eyes water. <sighs> you know, you it's unlikely. Quite... <laughs> He's still licking his balls. <laughs> yeah. I suppose you can listen to a podcast while you do that. I don't know. I don't know. I've never tried. <laughs> Was that not for the want of trying? <laughs> um, <laughs> so let's just get this in perspective, right? This is about personal cult movie. It's about champion cult movies that. You've seen, Graham's seen, I've seen, that not many people would have heard about. Not films that make the best hundred greatest films ever made lists. I stopped listening to you after you said a film that meant something to me. (laughs) Okay, Neil, you've worn me down. I would go and watch this film with an open mind. I'll watch anything other than superhero films, unless, like this month, I'm forced to. Whereas you're only keen on going to a disco and not watching a cult disco movie, as you've clearly showed with my review. You just haven't seen the film. Also, while the critics liked it, it's not shown much on TV. Uh, no, I haven't seen it. It is mainly on Film 4 quite a lot, but don't worry about that. Not that um, often. It's, it's not on... You can't get it on iTunes. You can't no. get it on Amazon. You can't get it on Netflix. All right, all right. So, Netflix. All right, so I, I would Netflix. have to look out my way to, to try and find it. Not happily to do that, but... Guys, I am put off by the heavy product placement I've heard about in this film. What? What? <laughs> product placement? She wear Adidas shoes all the way through oh, the film. Oh, for God's sake. No, um, no she and, has the shoes taken off because yes. it's a Japanese film. When she goes inside, she has okay. to take her shoes off. And, and I feel, if I'm watching this, I'll be supporting John Lasseter and Harvey oh. Weinstein. You know, and I wouldn't be surprised if it turns out to be one of Kevin Spacey's favourite films. Or, in your case, Graham, one of Mel's. Oh, uh, Graham, what oh, are your yeah. thoughts on this? Well, uh, 
I have a copy of Spirit Away in my collection, and I agree, it's a wonderful, timeless movie. I love the works of the animator director Miyazaki and Japan Studio Ghibli. It's my second favourite uh, Miyazaki movie, uh, just a smidgen behind Princess Mononoke. Jeff, you'd really like this movie. I mean, it's a horror classic. It's full of witches, ghosts, horror, and rivers that turn into dragons. However, because it's a Japanese uh, movie, the reason the river turns into a dragon is because the river has forgotten its true name. Yeah, it's very strange, involving stories of family, love, belonging and lost. It's an, it's an absolute cracker. All right, enough already. You've worn me down. I'll watch it. And I think there's a deal coming here. I'll watch this. You two stop picking superhero movies to review every month. <laughs> We're winning, Neil. <laughs> right, my cult movie is a little obscure. It's a French thriller called Diva. Uh, I first saw this movie 36 years ago. I can't believe that. I had to look that up. Uh, I watched it a couple of times as research for this segment, and it's still as good today as it was all those years ago. This was the movie that opened my eyes to the fact that cinema is an art form, uh, not just a bunch of people running around speaking dialogue. I don't think it would be too grandiose to say, but this is the movie that turned me from a movie watcher to a movie lover. I started to watch other movies of the time with a lot more attention, noticing for the first time the script, the nuances in the dialogue, the camera work, direction, sound, cinematography and music. Uh, The more I watched, the more I saw and the more I enjoyed it. I must have watched it a dozen times since then and it never fails to deliver. So let me give you the plot because it's a bit bizarre. So Jules, our hero, is a young postman, not the usual hero type. He is obsessed with classical music and is infatuated with a lady called Cynthia Hawkins. Now, she's an American opera soprano and has never allowed her singing voice to be recorded. She believes in the purity of the live experience. So Jules attends a concert and he makes a high-quality bootleg tape recording of her performance. Later, Jules accidentally comes into possession of an audio cassette with the recorded testimony of a prostitute which exposes the chief of police as the boss of a drug trafficking and prostitution ring. She is killed by the policeman's two henchmen. There's also two honest police officers who are after Jules, seeking the prostitute's cassette. He is also being hunted by the corrupt senior policeman's two murderous henchmen. In addition, two Taiwanese record producers are after his unique and valuable recording of Cynthia Hawkins. Jules has to seek refuge, and from all of these pursuers, he seeks it with his new friends, the mysterious bohemian anti-detective Serge Gorodish, and his young Vietnamese muse, a young lady called Alba. Now, the script of this movie is a masterpiece in suspense, and is very reminiscent of the master Alfred Hitchcock. The story is full of betrayal, confusion misdirection, chases, narrow escapes and suspense. There are so many different uh, parties after the tape uh, and you're constantly wondering how on earth are they going to sort all this out? The characters of Jules, our hero, the postman, is portrayed as the everyman. He thinks people are chasing him for one tape when in fact they're chasing him for another. And the direction of this is just fantastic. The director, Jean-Jacques Benix, is tied, um, constantly driving the story forward, letting the characters develop and become unique and fully three-dimensional. The action scenes are clever, shot to maximise the peril and keep you on the edge of your seat. Cinematography is wonderful. Everything looks lived in and the tones and shades of nighttime in Paris are breathtaking. The music score in the opera sections of the movie are wonderful and the rest of the music is electronica, which contrasts perfectly with the opera. In summary, it's a great forgotten masterpiece. It flared bright in the early 80s, but it's now forgotten. Strangely, the director was never able to repeat the success 
in any of his later movies. The cream of French acting talent queued up to perform in his movies because of the success of Diva, but they never had the stellar quality of Diva. Gents? Yeah, I was to say, it's an interesting choice, and it's another film I haven't seen. Although, you get the difference, you Neil, this is actually a cult film. <laughs> oh, uh, shush. <laughs> now... My one worry with it, it sounds a bit like a David Lynch movie, so I'd approach it with a little bit of caution. Uh, I liked his early stuff. His later stuff was just two way out there. Although I did see that this film is included in the book, 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. One thing that is very cult-like about this film, and you did mention it, Graham, is that the director, Jean-Jacques Benet, made three interesting films in the 80s. This, The Moon in the Gutter, and Betty Blue. Seen Betty Blue, not seen The Moon in the Gutter. Okay, and your thoughts on that one? I liked Betty Blue. I thought it was very good. Okay. I remember the music score. The music Mm, score was mm, really good. I haven't seen the film. So it's a true cult film, like Thank God It's Friday, and unlike Spirited Away. Neil, have you seen Diva? No, but it's on my list. Moving on to the movie news. I am up first this month and we have something of scoop for you. There's been much talk recently, well amongst us if no one else, about the film Danny Boyle is making from a script by Richard Curtis. Yes, we think this film has box office smash written all over it. Danny Boyle and Richard Curtis, what a combination. I can see it now. 28 days later meets four weddings and a funeral. If it's that, they should abandon the project. Anyway, back to our scoop. Not much is known about the plot, and so far no title has been revealed. We can, however, reveal uh, that current thinking for the film title is All You Need Is Love, and it is set in an alternate 1970s. This, we believe, is a 1970s where the Beatles never made it big, and only one person remembers them. Oh, and add to that... The music in the film will be covers of Beatles songs. How about that for something different? Well, I think it certainly is, Neil. Filming has been taking place for All You Need Is Love in Galston and London and shortly will start in Cardiff. The cast, some of whom have been spotted in these various locations, include the very funny Kate McKinnon from TV's Saturday Night Live and Lily James, excellent in Baby Driver and the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. That wasn't easy for you to say, Neil. It wasn't, no. Uh, Joel Fry, Game of Thrones, and wait for it, Ed Sheeran. Sheeran sings the Beatles. Oh, God, no, please. (laughs) All You Need Is Love is scheduled to open September 2019, and when he's finished making this movie, Danny Boyle will go straight on to Daniel Craig's last outing as James Bond. Top that one, Graham. Unfortunately, I can't, as Newshound Jeff has given me another Mel Gibson story for my news. Gibson. (laughs) You can say what you like about Mel Gibson... And we you will. guys frequently do. <laughs> we will. However, he has yet to go low enough to appear in a Marvel movie. Yeah, thank goodness no one's ever asked him to take part in one. There was a time when the only work he could get was the classic Expendables 3. I've got the Blu-ray. <laughs> You're the only person in the world who has that. So last month, uh, we mentioned Mel is back, working harder than ever. Boss Level is currently filming in Georgia. And after that, he was planning to start directing... Passion of the Christ sequel, Resurrection. I don't know where they go for number three. Well, in the crazy world of Hollywood, he has lined up two more projects before Resurrection, all thanks to his new friendship, Mark Wahlberg. 
Daddy's Home 3? Oh, Christ. <laughs> Thankfully not yet. No, no, the Christ would be in Resurrection. Just <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Christ uh, Resurrection 2. <laughs> Although they will be potentially working together on not one, but two upcoming movies. First up is a film Mark Wahlberg will act in and produce The Six Billion Dollar Man. Yes, the 1970s TV series The Six Million Dollar Man, adjusted for inflation. Mark Wahlberg will play Steve Austin, while Mel Gibson will play the supporting role of Oscar Goldman. Jeff? Have I upset you, mate? Why do I get all the bloody Mel Gibson stories? Not at all, Graham. You haven't upset me. I just thought you'd like to talk about something other than Marvel. You could view this like the 70s series of The Six Million Dollar Man, a state-of-the-art sci-fi. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, who did play The Six Million Dollar Man originally? Thingy. Him. Thingy. You know, yeah. what's his name? Yeah, he was with the six million dollar woman. Lee Majors. Lee Majors, oh, Lee Majors yeah. yeah. Right, okay, back <laughs> I, to the plot. However, there may be changes with the six billion dollar man as director and screenwriter Damien Chisvron has left the project because of those famous creative differences. The hunt is now on for a new director so that the May 2019 release date can still be met. Although, as Mr. Chisvron also wrote the script that may need to be updated as well. As for a new director, it is rumoured that it might get offered to Mel if he wants it. Well, that would put the cat among the pigeons for the other potential Gibson Wahlberg film, which is currently due to start shooting in September, and it's called Destroyer. Ha ha, Jeff! <laughs> Looks like you've slipped up here, mate. This actually sounds an interesting bit of news. Destroyer is the story of the USS Laffrey, a World War II American destroyer, which incredibly survived 22 kamikaze attacks during the Battle of Okinawa. The current plan is for Mel Gibson to just direct that one, which is based on a book called Hell from the Heavens. That is, no, hang on, that is two World War II sea adventures with Tom Hanks' film Greyhound. We spoke about that last month. And Hollywood has a habit of doubling it up when he hits on a good idea like Olympus Has Fallen and White House Down. I did read that as Destroyer is set during the same battle in which Hacksaw Ridge occurred, there are people who are asking, is Mel Gibson setting up a new cinematic universe? It's not a cinematic universe. It's called World War Two. You probably the, remember it, Neil. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, Jeff, I noticed your slip in the last podcast when you called Hacksaw Ridge Heartbreak Ridge. I guess you understand the confusion between the two films. One is made by someone with the very right-wing views and some of his relationships with women have been tabloid fodder, while the other one's by Mel Gibson. <laughs> very good. <laughs> very funny, Neil. <laughs> Jeff, can I please ask to talk about something other than Mel Gibson next month, please. Absolutely, Graham. I'll find out if Kevin Spacey's finally coming out of early retirement. <laughs> not exactly what I meant. <laughs> OK, so let's move on swiftly from that comment to our final news story of the month. Again, to our last podcast and the moment where Neil got excited about reporting on Disney's Jungle Trip starring Dwayne Johnson. Yeah, right. Is your medication giving <laughs> you problems again? Not that I'm aware of, Neil, but thank you for asking. I guess you're just getting confused by the film title and the way you got into North Korea recently to persuade that happy, jolly fellow, Little Rocket Man, to watch your cult film list. So, to help you, I'll recap about the film. You probably blotted it from your mind, Neil. Yep, I think Dis we all have. <laughs> Disney are turning their ride Jungle Trip 
into a major movie starring Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt. We now have a few more details about the film than we had last month. Firstly, it's set in the 1920s, and Edgar Ramirez, so good in the recent TV series American Crime Stories, where he played Gianni Versace, will play the villain and the always reliable Paul Giamatti, Sideways and TV's Billions, have joined the cast. Jungle Cruise is currently filming, and that will probably last until early July. However, that update, that's just the warm-up for my news this month. You see, I write it because I get the big build. (laughs) Now, after Jungle Cruise, Dwayne Johnson will make the Fast and the Furious spin-off Hobbs and Shaw with Jason Statham reprising his role of Shaw and, of course, Mr Johnson as Hobbs. Hang on, hang on. Where are the rest of the Fast and the Furious crew? Are they taking an extended holiday? No, they're going to be back filming a new Fast and the Furious film next year for an April 2020 release. As to whether Dwayne Johnson will be in it remains uncertain. It's no secret that relations between key members of the franchise were very poor during the filming of The Fate of the Furious. A shame that there was no love on set. When the Hobbs and Shaw film was announced, it caused one member of the Fast and Furious cast to become Fast and Furious on social media, which sounds like Orangeman diplomacy to me. So Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham, whose giant shark movie Meg opens this summer, will play the former enemies who have to team up for an as-yet unspecified adventure. In fact, nothing is known about the other cast members, the story, or even where it will be filmed. My understanding is... The script is going through a final polish before filming starts in September for an August 2019 release. In recent interviews, Jason Statham has said that there will be plenty of action and laughs in the movie. We'll see. He probably hasn't seen the script yet. Uh, One good thing about this is the director. It's David Leach. His last two films were Atomic Blonde and Deadpool 2, which Neil's going to talk about shortly. And Leach himself has said of his intent with Hobbs and Shaw... He grew up watching the buddy movies of the 80s and he wants to capture that spirit of 48 hours and lethal weapon with his film. Although I think political correctness might have to come in a little bit. I don't know if you guys have seen 48 hours recently. Yes. Yep. Yeah, not good. Um, uh, that's a novel idea, taking supporting characters from a film and making them stars of their own movie. Any previous examples, Jeff? Inspector Clouseau, as played by Peter Sellers in The Pink Panther. He was essentially the comic relief character, and I don't think I need to say any more about where his on-screen persona took off and where he went from there. And by the way, did you know Peter Sellers wasn't the first choice uh, for Inspector Clouseau? Okay, are you going to ask him or am I going to ask him? No, I'm not asking him. Who was then, Jeff? The person who was asked and turned it down was Peter Ustinov. What? Yeah. Peter Usanoff was who they wanted for Inspector Clouseau. But he spoke about 138 languages. How can he do a bad French accent? No, just, no, no, no. It wouldn't work. We no, will no. never know. Well, thank God. Yeah. How about a Bond spin-off about Q, Ben Whishaw, and Moneypenny, Naomi Harris, on their adventures to stop a madman from taking over the world? That, Neil, is a great idea. Oh, no. Thank you. The last time they let Moneypenny onto the field, she shot and almost killed Bond. Now, I'm not being sexist here, and you know I wouldn't be. <laughs> yes, but are. in yes, this instance, <laughs> she might be better left behind a desk typing. Let's move to the reviews. Or as I call this section this month, Superhero Central. Review section. 
Neil's review, Deadpool 2. The Merc with the Mouth is back. Ryan Reynolds returns as Deadpool in the sequel, where there's even more breaking of the fourth wall, even more violence, and even more swearing. And yes, even more comedy. Although it is difficult to believe the comic aspect when the film starts with the indestructible superhero trying to kill himself because of a personal tragedy. Luckily for him and us, the self-destructive cycle is stopped when his Russian X-Men friend Colossus rescues him and tries to make him an X-Man apprentice. Their first mission is to stop an emerging teenage mutant, Russell, played by Hunt for the Wilder People's Julian Dennison from turning his firepowers loose. The mission takes a twist when Cable, played by Joss Brolin, more on him in another film, <laughs> a super soldier from the future, travels back in time with a plan to kill Russell. Just in case you think you figured out the plot, I would add, the Terminator this is not. Speaking of the Terminator, I will hand you over to our own Arnie Soundalike for his thoughts on Deadpool 2. Leading up to 2016, 20th Century Fox decided to finally film Deadpool, an 18 certificate for a miserly, in the current climate, 58 million. 780 million or so later, it was their highest grossing film that year. Having learned a lesson, they made the excellent Logan, this time a 15, for a 97 million and grossing 619 million. And for Deadpool 2, the budget is 110 million. And now the Merc with the Mouth is back with Cable and some super unhelpful trailers. What to say, and without revealing key plots that would ruin the film. First up, this is as good as the original. Expectations were higher and the director, David Leach, who we mentioned earlier, and writers Brett Reese, Paul Wernick and Ryan Reynolds himself really ups the angst. The film rattles along and seems way shorter than the stated runtime of two hours. Standouts, Zazie Beats as Domino. She's lucky, she really is lucky. (laughs) Every scene she's in is excellent. More of her, please. Junian Dennison is the kid, as excellent as the troubled teen. This man surely has a great future ahead of him. Karen Sony is back as Dupinder. And he gets way more airtime, always a win. We got Deadpool's backstory in the first film and some of Cable's in this. Josh Brolin is excellent as a foil for Ryan Reynolds. So Dark, are you sure you're not from the DC universe? There's more gags than before and it may be me, but I understood more of them this time. I still don't know who Mama June is. Perhaps the need to make a return on investment force them to be more accessible. It's an excellent antidote to the current glut of superhero movies. Or is it? No, Neil. The answer to that glut is more films like <laughs> Thank God It's Friday. Ignoring Jeff, and I've tried that for so many years, but I will do one day. The more I think of it, the more I believe this is a superhero movie in itself. Is it a parody? I'm not sure. There are jokes, including at Marvel and DC's expense, sure. But the film has depth. The music is often played for laughs, as Careless Whisper was in the first film, but both Cable and Wade Wilson have real things to deal with. Not to spoil the movie, but they're both broken and have to fix things. Cable's future and Deadpool's existential crisis. Ryan Reynolds is extremely good, both the humour and the pathos, sometimes both at the same time. I hope the Academy are watching this as he gets shot again. Leslie Uggams is back as Blind Al, who Deadpool visits to talk through his problems, and there's also a visual reference to the first film you may recognise. There is, this time, an all-star cast of extras. Blink and you'll miss them. And as for who plays Vanisher, 
you'll need to wait until halfway through the credits. Also look out for two rednecks discussing toilet paper. The first film came in under the radar with low expectations, but achieved. The second was made for much more money, and there was a responsibility to appease the backers. While jokes about potentially going on for ten years are funny, the money men are probably looking at the possibility. Deadpool 3, I believe called X-Force, but without TJ Miller, is being worked on and includes Deadpool, Cable and Domino, who apparently had extra scenes included as she got such good, good reviews in the test screenings. Oh, she was really, really good. She uh, was really fabulous. Yeah. All in all, an excellent Deadpool movie, as good as the first, and this time Deadpool starts to become the hero he repeatedly professes not to be. He'll be back. <laughs> well, thank you for that. You know, I said earlier about that leather jacket. No, I'm not sure if it's Arnie's or Marv's. Whoever it is, you're going to have to give it back to them. By the way, I did notice in your review you didn't mention a single thing about sitting next to a vibrator in the cinema when you watched that film. Is there anything you'd like to share with our listeners? The young lady was buzzing with excitement at seeing Deadpool again, laughing at all the wrong scenes before the opening credits. If you've seen the film, you'll know what I'm talking about. That I could still enjoy the film, despite that, is testament to how good it is. Wish I'd looked at the, for the off switch, mind. <laughs> or put it into spin cycled and leaned on her like a washing machine. <laughs> OK, my thoughts on Deadpool. Pool too. <laughs> okay, well, you know my thoughts on superhero films, but I've got to accept this is a better and more accomplished feature than the original Deadpool film. And it also gives me hope that the whole superhero cycle of movies is coming to an end. What we're seeing at the moment with this film, with a place of comedy, and when we come on to Avengers Infinity War, where it just throws in everything as well as the kitchen sink, it's just sort of bringing the whole cycle to an end and that's exactly what happened with the universal monster films so um i just hope there aren't mass suicides over in the empire office when it eventually happens <laughs> anyway back to this film it's more epic in structure and clearly more money's been spent on it uh it has more humor more violence interestingly there's less sex well unless you count neil's vibrator <laughs> uh, the film is at its best when it plays with your expectations the use of cable as a terminator which is not but it's also the setup and then destruction of x-force which to me was the best and funniest Sterical. sequence in the film yeah. yeah and and yet with all of this with all of this breaking of the fourth wall there is an emotional core to the film and the theme of family I found that very interesting in the way that was played. The acting quality also helped with that. I think Reynolds is having a whale of a time. And I agree with Neil that Julian Dennison and Zaza Beats are brilliant. And I'd like to see more of their adventures. Uh, it's not so good. It just overdoes things with the breaking of the fourth wall on occasions. The supposed death scene, enough already. However, in the end, it redeems itself with some funny end credits. Our listeners have come in with a few comments. Paul Nicholas, which I liked, uh, said Ryan Reynolds had his tongue so far in his cheek, I'm surprised he didn't get lockjaw. Phil Foster says of the film, ultraviolent, expletive laden and seriously funny. This sequel is superior to the original. I wish I'd said something as succinct as that. Yeah, your yeah. thoughts on I, Deadpool 2. I, I thought it was better than the original. I, I thought it had more story. The first movie was just very much uh, Deadpool's origin story. For DP2, I loved that they didn't mess with the action-heavy, foul-mouthed, joke-fueled formula. With this one, they just dialed it up to 11. And they added a load more characters. You know, they did what seems to be a trend in the MCU. That at the moment, they killed most of them off. 
They made a load of references to the first movie, which were all very funny. Superhero hero landing is so impractical. Yeah. Loved that joke. In addition, there were throwaway lines, the Black Black Widow uh, and Brian Panther were great little lines. Direction was tight. The action was very well paced and a number of the big action scenes, pacing the plot progression, just wonderful. Um, like you and Neil, I loved Zazie Beetz uh, as Domino. In the comics, she has a very steamy love affair with Wolverine and I thought that they would do something with that in the movie, riffing off Deadpool's bromance with Wolverine, but no, maybe for DP3, which uh, I'm uh, very And much if she had a vibrator, it would be well <laughs> Yeah, You're never going to live that remark down, are you? Know? No, no, I'll, try, I'll, I'll ring her up, see, yeah. see if she's available I, for you. Yeah. Careful when you ring it up, who knows what she'll put to her ear. <laughs> oh, good grief. I, I thought there were some great little things in it. I thought the Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ reference, great. They'd think the death scene uh, was too long. However, they did take a scene out at the end, didn't they, Jeff? They did, yeah. During the test screening of the film, when uh, Deadpool was going through time, he ends up in a nursery with Hitler as a baby, and he strangles the baby. What you then see (laughs) is from baby Hitler's point of view as he's being killed by Deadpool. Audiences didn't find that funny. That one went... (laughs) Okay, moving away from superhero movies uh, to Jeff's superhero-free zone. Our next movie for review is Breaking In, and this is Jeff's movie for the month. This is not the movie he was supposed to review. Jeff's Entebbe review got hijacked, and he had to review Breaking In rather than Entebbe, which, of course, would be Breaking Out. Two terrible jokes in (laughs) one line. Right, Right. Breaking In stars Gabrielle Union as a woman who has to protect her family. This woman in peril thriller should be considered a warning to you, Jeff, given your earlier comments about Moneypenny. I was only protecting Moneypenny. Gabrielle Union plays Sean Russell, a woman who for years has been estranged from her criminal father. When he's killed, uh, Sean inherits his incredible fortress-style house located in the middle of nowhere. She plans to sell the property, so one weekend, Sean goes to the house with her two teenage children to put it in order. Bad timing. Uh, Unknown to Sean, her father was murdered, and the murderers are at the house trying to find a hidden safe containing a small fortune. The three innocents soon find themselves involved in a very deadly game of cat and mouse. It sounds a bit like Panic Room, that old Jodie Foster film. Am I right, Jeff, or does it manage to rise above the potential clichés? You are right, Graham. And unfortunately, despite some good sequences, and frankly some performances better than the film deserves, this does not really rise above the mundane. Don't get me wrong, it's well put together and its short running time of under 90 minutes is packed with action as Gabrielle Union tries to keep one step ahead of the thieves and killers both inside and outside the house. However, it lacks a key ingredient. By keeping the runtime to under 90 minutes, it's missing a solid backstory. Questions like what happened between the character of Sean and her father? Just exactly how did she get a certain set of skills which keep her one step ahead of the bad guys? And how did said bad guys know about the house and the safe? You don't get these answers, and as a result, the characters are just ciphers who you can't really emotionally invest in. Unlike well, Panic Room, where, where the time was taken to build up the characters for Jodie Foster and Jared Leto. Exactly, and any comparison to Panic Room, this film's always going to come off second best, which is a shame, as I really like the two main performances mm, in the film. Me too, me too. Yeah. Gabrielle Union, an actress... I don't really know. I sort of remember her from Bad Boys 2 and 10 Things I Hate About You. 
She's very good as Sean. She can certainly do action scenes and her fear for her family does come across strongly. However, because of how poor that backstory is, you cannot invest in her character. Now, I'll give you an example. All through the film, Miss Union shows she can better her potential captors, both physically and mentally. However, in the final confrontation, her response to how she can do all this is, I'm just a mother. No, you're clearly not. And that scriptwriter should, quite frankly, be shot. Just lazy writing. Lazy <laughs> writing. Now, the other performance I like, and the same rules apply, no backstory to invest in, is Billy Burke. He knows he has the upper hand for most of the film, so he's measured and rarely raises his voice. It is a controlled character, and far from the cliché of this type of role. At the end, in what is almost the final showdown of the film, he knows Sean has got the better of him, and he accepts it. He plans to cut his losses, walk away with the money. This is an excellently played sequence, only marred by the silly twist involving another character, which follows it, and we'll come back to you shortly. Now, where this film excels to a point is in its inversion of a racial protagonist. It is a black family who are being hunted by a mainly white group of men. More so, it is a black mother and her teenage children who are the victims. Her husband does not show up until much later in the film, and he is only there to be a victim, a bargaining chip in this by now very deadly game. This is a progressive step forward for American cinema, and its good box office return shows it was worth the investment. Coming a couple of months after Black Panther, which, while an average Marvel movie, but then are most of them, <laughs> oh, does have geez, strong <laughs> does have strong role model black characters. Let's hope this trend continues. There is a concerning racial area within the film. There are four members of the gang breaking into the house. Of these three are white. The fourth is a Mexican American, played by former real life gang member Richard Cabral. One of the few reasons to watch the Lethal Weapon TV series. He is excellent. He is portraying a psycho who uses a knife to grisly effect a couple of times in the movie. It's definitely not above torture and is only finally stopped when he's trying to rape the teenage daughter. In short, his character represents everything Orangeman says about Mexican and it is deeply offensive. Given all you've said, why on earth did you pick this film for review and for us all to watch? That's a good question for you, Neil. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. <laughs> As was said earlier, my chance of reviewing Interbi was taken away as it was not screened locally. Also, it is directed by James McTee, who made one of my favourite films of the century, being V for Vendetta. To be honest, I also thought his film The Raven, about the last few days of Edgar Allan Poe's life, is also an interesting film. Here, though, he's just a journeyman director. Without that backstory, this film, as well made as it is, has no real tension. Looking back at Mr. McTeague's career, it is only when he works with the Wachowskis that it brings out the best in him. In fact, what this film needs is some of the verb the Wachowskis showed in one of their first films, the excellent thriller Bound. Breaking in just doesn't have it. This is just an average thriller and one I would recommend waiting for to come on TV. Before I hand over to you both, I have some comments from Paul Nicholas on this one I'd like to share. Paul says... It did deliver a plot line that was so incomplete and full of holes that it hurt my sensibilities. <laughs> it was a bit like a corn sausage of a film to me. Idea was good, looked okay on the box, but totally unfulfilling, leaving you longing for a proper sausage. So, Neil, did it leave you longing for a proper sausage? 
could see that one coming. Ignore, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Ignoring Jeff, if only that were possible. The tension is built up in the first scenes, and it builds, but it can't sustain the momentum. The thieves think there's a safe with money in it. Why not wait until the house is empty? Lots of the film didn't make sense. Sure, the acting is good and the action scenes are okay, but it just didn't sustain anything. Graham? Yeah, I agree. Um, the acting was good and, and the action scenes were well done. It, it flipped the old worn-out woman-in-peril trope on its head. However, the building of suspense and, and the call-and-response nature of great action movies were missing. It had its moments, with her stabbing the first uh, assailant with the stem of a wine glass, and then when she used the fireworks to simulate uh, gunfire, I thought they were good. I liked the um, fierceness of the mother and the primeval uh, drive to protect her, her young. Uh, that was well played, but the rest of the movie was a letdown. It was very a very short movie. And I did wonder if all of the character development and the backstory were left on the cutting room floor. Uh, I think there was the makings of a great movie, but it fell short on a number of action movie essentials. Okay, Neil, over to you. For another superhero movie. Oh, my luck's really in. Can we go over breaking in again, please? No. <laughs> Thanks, Graham. I'll provide you the plot synopsis for Avengers Infinity War. Infinity Wars and the Avengers film coming next year are the culmination of ten years planning from Marvel. Do you know how many films there's been up to this point, Jeff? Too many. <laughs> Predictable, I suppose. There have been 18 films with the Avengers Infinity War following on from the Thor Ragnarok post credit sequence where the Asgardian spaceship was captured. The opening of the film reveals that they were captured by Thanos and his evil army out to get the six Infinity Stones. You may remember Thanos from such films as Guardians of Galaxy and the first Avengers movie. He's a big character with big ideas. In the previous films, Thanos has always sent out others to get his prize. So what you're saying is, Neil, Thanos has no stones. Good job. He doesn't lean against the washing machine then. Uh, it sounds like Thanos is acting like every CEO I've ever known. Get others to do the work so he can take the glory. Indeed. However, this time Thanos decides to do the work himself, clearly CEO fantasy, and ruthlessly will not let anyone stand in the way of his destiny. Within minutes of the film starting, the stakes are shown to be very high as key characters who have grown to know over the last decade are ruthlessly killed yes. off. Yes! Oh, sorry. <laughs> Marvel is not sitting on the fence with this one. Graham, given all that, is it any good? Thanks, Neil. Uh, this review is spoiler-heavy, uh, and if you're a superhero fan and you haven't seen this movie yet, seriously? What's wrong with you? If you're not a superhero fan then this movie will not make any sense. What if you're just not a Marvel superhero oh, shush, fan? Shush, shush. Yes, shush. <laughs> you either arrive at this movie, Jeff, with the full 10 years, 18-movie backstory, or you stay at home. As Master Yoda once said, do or do not. There is no try. And Jeff, you're very trying at times. This is a Thanos movie, not an Avengers movie. It's all about Thanos. Uh, at the very end of Avengers movies, it usually says the Avengers will return. This one actually said Thanos will return. Finally, after 18 movies in the MCU, we meet the architect of so much of the chaos that the Avengers have faced in their previous movies. 
Thanos, played brilliantly by Josh Brolin, uh, who's having one hell of a month this <laughs> this year. Yeah. He's a great villain. His motivation is like that other super baddie, Darth Vader. Vader wants to bring order to the galaxy. Thanos wants to bring balance to the universe. Thanos' desire for balance comes from witnessing the destruction of his homeworld titan this is a very different from the balance he is trying to achieve in the comics i much prefer the movie motivation for thanos to the comic one the infinity war series of comics is completely bonkers the movie is so much better thought out and executed he's obsessed with balance yes he's mad and yes he's the ultimate protagonist and antagonist rolled into one he believes what he is doing is right and will restore balance to the galaxy by the most brutal means possible it is this simple ultra focused line of reasoning that makes him believable and a realistic villain in the first two minutes on screen thanos defeats thor loki heimdall and the Hulk. So we know that this guy is no pushover. This guy is evil, powerful, and very dangerous. This is the first time the Hulk has ever been beaten, and it so shocks the Hulk that he doesn't actually re-emerge for the rest of the movie. I like the way he smashed the Hulk in exactly the same way (laughs) the Hulk smashed Loki in the Avengers Assemble movie. Picks him up and slams him headfirst into the floor. Yeah, exactly. Thanos' problem is he doesn't kill enough Marvel superheroes. (laughs) Oh, stop with the anti-Marvel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a broken record. He is a broken record. I liked those little callbacks to the previous movies. There's a scene later on when Bucky swings Rocket around in a circle whilst both are firing guns, which is a callback to the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Right, let's move on with the actual components of the movie, the direction and the directors. One of the things about this movie that I'm most impressed with is the Russo brothers' direction. Five years ago, only five years ago they were directing tv shows like arrested development and community good shows but tv shows and now they're directing a 450 million dollar flagship of a 14 billion dollar mcu franchise i'm amazed at the courage of the producer kevin faye entrusting young talent with these mega projects not only with the russo brothers but with Tika Waititi, who directed Thor Ragnarok, and as I mentioned in episode 3 of the podcast, Ryan Coogler for Black Panther. Incredible ballsy moves from Feige. The direction of the action sequences, they just keep getting better and better. Uh, They're very good at these action-heavy ensemble, multi-threaded movies. They cut their teeth on Captain America movies, starting with the excellent Winter Soldier. Then they moved on to the very complex Civil War with the iconic airport battle between Team Cap and Team Iron Man. The Infinity War movie is so well structured. There is so much going on. But at no time are you lost or confused. There are lots of interlinking stories. Thor, Rocket and Groot search for a replacement for Thor's hammer. Iron Man and Doctor Strange and Spider-Man are stuck on Titan. Gamora and her sister Nebula have another story running. The remaining Guardians, referred to as the Morons by Thor... Uh, end up uh, on a different track and finally end up in Titan. The Vision and Scarlet Witch romance and the quest to remove the Mind Stone. Bucky's return with a new arm in Wakanda. Captain America back in from the cold. And Eric Banner's quest to bring the Hulk back. Did you take a notebook into the cinema? I actually did, uh, yes. And I took a novel in. (laughs) (laughs) That one was funny, I'll give you that (laughs) With all these uh, uh, different plot lines and multiple characters, the pace never misses a beat, the action's relentless, and you can clearly sense the urgency. Simply 
first-class direction from the brothers. The script and story are wonderful as well. All of the dialogue is pared down to allow more time for the action. The script drives the narrative forward at the same frenetic pace as the direction. All of the direction and script are about moving all of these characters towards the climatic conclusion set in Wakanda and on Titan. There is also a lot of humour in the script. Chris Hemsworth is a standout for me. Who would have thought he had such great uh, comedy timing? And he has a lot of the best uh, lines in the movie. The interplay between Doctor Strange and Tony Stark is great. Spider-Man lands some great one-liners as well. It's a lot funnier than I thought it was going to be. I really like the film music. Jeff is our resident film music aficionado. What do you think of the music, Jeff? All joking aside, this is one of the aspects of the film I really did like. I think Alan Silvestri should be the resident Marvel composer after this. Wow, okay. (laughs) Uh, I thought the cast were all great. Uh, All 30-odd principal actors delivered solid performances. The only character I have a problem with is probably Drax the Destroyer, who I've just been reduced to a comedy punch bag. Sad as I really like the the actor Dave Bautista. He was great in Blade Runner 2047, which Jeff loved, and in the first Guardians movie. Special effects were incredible. The look of the movie is very interesting, with lots of the characters being 100% motion-captured. Josh Brolin... Uh, spends the entire movie as a digital creation, as do almost all of the Black Order, the the children of Thanos. Mixing the motion capture with the live action is, at this point, with the technology that ILM have at their disposal, undetectable. Apart from one special effect that was added at the very last minute, the effects are flawless. So my final thoughts are the expectations were high for Infinity War, the first installment of this two-part finale which will wrap up the whopping 20-film Disney franchise. I think I can say for fans of superhero movies that the expectation has been fully met. I love this movie. For a comic book fan, it is everything in spades. I think the movie was the most comic booky of all the MCU movies. I have seen it a number of times, and to me it's just perfect. For people who are not fans, I think it's long, confusing, and uh, lacks an emotional punch, mainly because they haven't invested the 10 years uh, in the central characters. Superhero fatigue has not set in. Just can't wait for the next one. But I could wait for your review, Jeff, because I think... It's long, confusing, and lacks emotional punch. Uh, (laughs) Your words, not mine, Graham. Uh, All right, let's get it out there then. As a Marvel film, it was okay. It's not perfect. Two and a half hours, this movie's (laughs) essentially about a series of fights. But I thought about this and why I liked it. Essentially, this is a remake of Justice League. It used it as its role model, and it's gone dark. It's gone DC. I think that's good. Now, that also said, the banter is excellent. Robert Downey Jr. has some people who can bounce his dialogue back and forth with him. Benedict Cumberpatch and Chris Pratt. Also very funny. Very, very uh, funny. Yeah. It's, it is worthy of some of the exchanges in the original and best Avengers film, which was written before Joss Whedon lost the plot. Now, by sheer number of characters, not all could shine. And interestingly, it was the female characters that seemed to fail to resonate. Black Widow, Nebula and Suri, Letitia White, who was so good in Black Panther, seemed to be kept to a minimum. Real strength comes from... Thanos, as played by Joss Brolin, as Graham said, you know, Thanos will be back the next time. Clearly, the whole focus on this is on this character. And what I liked about him is his motivation. It wasn't power for himself. 
He was stark raving mad. I'll give you that. <laughs> yeah, he was. But, you know, he sees himself as the hero. And like everybody else in the film, he's also had to sacrifice to get to where he wants to be. And when he stares up at the sun rising at the end, it's another spoiler, Neil, for anybody who hasn't seen it, uh, it's hard not to feel that sense of accomplishment. And I think this is where Marvel did get it right and Justice League got it wrong, and I can't believe I'm saying that. This villain had a real sense of purpose, a real understanding. It wasn't just a CGI creation. In fact, it's a lot like Samuel L. Jackson's character in Kingsman, same motivation. Or, as I put it succinctly, wrong solution, right motivation. <laughs> And there is a lot of death in the film. But is it permanent? I don't think so. Nobody dies dies in the comics, so I don't see why they're going to die in this. No, no, that's right, unless their contracts are up. In the next film, where this whole story ends, there will have to be some real sacrifice. Otherwise, it's going to be a hollow victory. So I think that does raise the stakes. And let's talk about that. The next Avengers Part 2 is going to have to be spectacular. And it was interesting to note he kept some of the characters back, such as Ant-Man and Hawkeye. And essentially, after the first 20 minutes, you never saw the Hulk. And I think all of that is being kept for the second film. And our listeners have already thrown in their Mm. comments on this. Now, Phil Foster, who's a keen superhero movie watcher, calls Avengers Infinity War a super action-packed spectacle, which is pretty much in agreement with you, Graham. Whereas Paul Nicholas, it was messy. It felt like flicking through a comic book and seeing all the pretty pictures, but not getting the story. It felt like a Greatest Hits compilation album, No Soul, and I hate Greatest Hits compilation albums. So uh, Neil, so do I. <laughs> so Neil, he hasn't got a sausage for you this time, but what are your thoughts on this film? <laughs> I loved it. Beginning to end, it's fast, action-packed and funny. All the characters shine. There are no weak points. Maybe why Hawkeye and Ant-Man were benched. Oh, Thor gets way more to do than punching or being punched, which I liked. Very funny. As for part two, most of the big players are still alive. We'll have to learn to work together and selflessly. Well, that's the first half of the movie sorted. And as Doctor Strange says to Iron Man when he gives the time stone to Thanos, it's the only way. Well, we'll have to wait a year to find out what he meant. And that's the other half of the movie sorted. It's brilliant. Best line of the movie for me was Sweet Rabbit. When he kept referring to Rocket as Sweet Rabbit. That just made me laugh. Okay, I think that's this section done. If you liked Avengers Infinity War, you might also enjoy, well, anything uh, in the MCU. But I would recommend particularly Thor Ragnarok, Captain America the Winter Soldier, and for a little light relief, Doctor Strange or Ant-Man. Outside of the MCU, I would recommend Batman The Dark Knight with Heath Ledger delivering an incredible performance as the Joker. Graeme, are you sure you don't write for Empire magazine? Because <laughs> this is like their fandom here. <laughs> for Deadpool 2, I would recommend Deadpool 1, obviously, and Green Lantern. No, and no, War- no. Don't ever recommend Green Lantern. It's shit. I like Green Lantern. Oh, it's... Oh, God. I'm recommending Green Lantern. He actually shot himself in Deadpool 2 so that nobody could see Green Lantern. That's a spoiler alert for anybody. (laughs) That's a spoiler alert, yeah. Please, uh, yeah, we'll have to put something in front of that. And Green Lantern and Wolverine to find out what the hell Wade Wilson is banging on about. See, Graham, I'm recommending it to show what Wade Wilson's doing, not because they're any good. (laughs) They're crap. Wolverine's excellent. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, they stopped talking about bloody superhero <laughs> movies. So for Breaking In, which is not a superhero movie, I would recommend Panic Room, which we yes, mentioned excellent. within it, V for Vendetta, Brilliant. same director, yep. 
Kidnap, a film from last year starring Halle Berry, where her son's kidnapped, very much along the, the same sort of lines, but nowhere near as good as Breaking In, and the atmospheric 10 Cloverfield Lane. Graham, what else have you been watching this month? And don't tell me it's superhero films. It's a lot of superhero stuff I've been actually watching. What so a surprise. This month I've been watching a lot of TV and I've got a couple of movies to talk about. My first is the first season of Lost in Space. I think I mentioned last month that I was going to start watching this and it was an excellent show. Very modern, darker than the squeaky clean 1960s original. Great diverse cast, strong female leads, good story. Parker Posey is a standout as the manipulating Dr. Smith. I'm very impressed and very interested to see where they take this for season two. Next up is the uh, first season of Marvel's The Runaways on sci-fi in the UK. This is set on the west coast of the US with uh, superheroes enjoying sunshine on the beach rather than the cold and damp of New York City. It's a TV adaptation of Brian K. Vaughan's comic about a group of teenagers who find out that their parents are supervillains while discovering their own emerging superpowers. I'm six episodes in and still watching it. However, six episodes in and they still haven't run away so strange (laughs) and finally my last TV choice is Marvel's Legion uh, season 2 on Fox in the UK still bonkers sort of enjoyable but I'm sure it'll make uh, sense sometime I'll just have to stick with it as the first season was excellent um, this is complex intelligent hard hitting superhero stuff casual superhero fans need not apply oh two very quick things I enjoyed on Netflix uh, The Rain a post-apocalyptic story set in Denmark and 3% a Brazilian series about a divided world of haves and hard have nots both excellent binging material movies next uh films i'd also recommend the incredibly long named the guernsey literary and potato peel pie society easy for you to say t- actually it was easy for you to say <laughs> damn it <laughs> really this one is uh, want to watch a movie with your mum or your gran this is it most of the cast of downton abbey travel to 1946 to solve a wartime mystery on the island of guernsey parent friendly stuff with no sex or drugs or rock and roll well-acted, slow-paced for the old people like Jeff, and more of a puzzle than a true mystery. Gentle, romantic, easy watch. However, the other end of the scale, the other film I'd like to recommend is Rampage. This is just big, silly fun. Plot is nonsense, but the pacing and the effects are good. This is every Godzilla monster movie rolled into one. Tokyo is swapped for Chicago. It stars The Rock. um, No, hang on, we have to call him Dwayne Johnson now, don't we? Uh, As a primatologist action hero. Primatologist, is that even a thing? Uh, Supported ably by the British actress Naomi Harris. Uh, This is an action movies, action movie. Great fun. Well, for me, I've got a cinema, TV and radio choices for cinema. Now, I heard, and I've got to agree with Graham, that the Guernsey Literary A Potato Peel Pie Society... It's a far better film than (laughs) Avengers Infinity War. One that will stay in the memory longer. And to be quite honest, that should be earning two billion in (laughs) revenue as opposed to that superhero nonsense. Tully. Well, I absolutely hated this one. There may well be a snapshot movie review being posted of our comments immediately after watching the film, if all my swearing could be removed. Uh, The quick answer is no, there will not be a a little audio clip. Uh, After you had finished your massive rant about how much you hated everything in this movie, there was about 30 seconds of usable audio. (laughs) 
And that was all your review, wasn't it? You're wrong, by the way. Wait, no, no, no. It offended my political correctness <laughs> sensibilities. Don't be, don't be it's self-indulgent and it's sexist. I was offended. <laughs> Moving on. Anon. Finally, Sky get it right with one of their joint screenings and cinema releases. Directed by Andrew Nichol, the man behind Gattaca and In Time, starring Clive Owen, the stark warning about data privacy plays like a Blade Runner detective story. It is absorbing and fascinating until the last act, where it unfortunately falls apart. However, a great effort and a wonderful example of sci-fi world-building. For TV, has to be season seven of Homeland quite simply the best yet. The last two seasons of this show have been set in America. As this one begins, the female president has completed a series of purges against those who oppose her. Former CIA operative Carrie Matheson, again played by Claire Danes, who is brilliant, initially sets out to expose the flaws of this presidency. However, there's many twists along the way. It deals with fake news, right-wing shock jocks and Russian interference. It's like looking into a dark mirror of what's going on in our world. Brilliant. Can't wait for the eighth and final series. Finally for radio, comedian and actor John Sessions has completed a short series of personal showbiz stories called Six Degrees of John Sessions. They are hilariously funny. The standouts for me were his stories of working alongside Mel Gibson on The Bounty. I think, Graham, you like that one, particularly yep. the Mel things. Yes. Uh, and attending a dinner party with Maureen O'Hara. I urge you to try and seek these out. For me, I rewatched Dunkirk on Sky. When I first saw it, there was a problem with the sound and it completely ruined the film. This time, I could really appreciate the brilliance of it. As Graham and Jeff have already mentioned, Tully, ignore Jeff, it's excellent. And Rampage, lower your expectations and it's okay, I guess. Neil, stop sucking up to Graham. You know Tully's rubbish. No, it was brilliant, Jeff. It was brilliant. You're you're wrong. Uh, And I finally managed to see Attack the Block on Film 4, as suggested in our Twitter feed at The Flicks Pod. But that's a horror film. It is, yes. Thoroughly enjoyable and a chance to see John Boyega's breakout film and the new Doctor Who, Jodie Whittaker. Other than that... Mm. I've been outside playing golf in the sun. Practising golf is what you mean, Neil. Playing is for people who are good at the sport. (laughs) I can't even disagree with that comment. Right on both counts. Okay, finally a small victory on my part. Over to you, Graham, for details on next month's show. As for next month, Neil will be reviewing The Bromley Boys. Jeff will be reviewing some more dinosaur crap. (laughs) Uh, That'll be Jurassic World. (laughs) Graham will be reviewing Solo, a Star Wars story. Not a superhero movie. Well, it sort of is, though, isn't it, really? <laughs> sort of is, because it is. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. I think we've reached that point in the show where Jeff needs to let go and settle in and give us his quiz. <sighs> this is why I've been sticking around oh. the show, to be quite honest. Right, so let's get to the reason everybody's still here, this month's quiz. In fact, it's the only reason Neil's still awake. Okay, here's the question. Dustin Hoffman and Jack Nicholson have both played this particular real-life character. However, for legal reasons, one of them had to change the name of this character he was playing. Oh, for God's sake. Who is this famous real-life person? And in what films did Dustin Hoffman and Jack Nicholson portray him? I'll write it out with you, Neil, later. <laughs> I, I don't know. Dustin I, I guess that. And yeah. 
So you've just got to find a movie that they both were in. Well, the different yeah, names. I, I, I think this mainly is for the listeners to take away. Let's not try and work it out here because we sort of spoil the fun for next month. <laughs> Moving on. Hang on. Did, fun. You, did you say you're fun? <laughs> that was my thank you, Neil. You got to me a nanosecond earlier. Yeah, fun, Jeff. This is pure torture. Again, slam your hand in a car door, get exactly the same effect. Well, at least you said slam your hand. You toned that one down from earlier. <laughs> <laughs> same effect. Gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap, and another at the flicks is in the can. So it only remains for us to say... It's Prochet from Neil to our listener in the Russian Federation. And it's Bon Nuit to our French listener from Jeff. It's Sayonara and thanks for listening for all our listeners in Japan. And to everyone else... Thanks thanks for for listening listening and and goodbye. goodbye!